Welcome into another edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. My name is Chris Whittingham, joined as always by Ethan Skolnick. You're listening to this following a Miami Heat loss in game number three of their Eastern Conference playoffs. First round series to the Philadelphia 76ers by a score of 128 to 108. And Ethan, straight away, that standout statistic is that the Miami Heat's two biggest points conceded totals in the history of their franchise in the playoffs are in this series. Game one giving up 130 to Philly and game three giving up 128. Another defensive performance that's a bit lackluster. It's really lackluster. And I mean, when you go deeper, you look all time in terms of their first round performances, the 361 points they've given up in the first three games are by far the most they've ever given up in the first three games of a first round series. So this has been a historically bad defensive performance the, the previous worst was their first year in the playoffs, uh, something we've talked about with some people who've been on the pod with us. In the very first time that the Heat were in the playoffs, they gave up 343. So they've given up 361 here in the first three games. And games one and three look a lot alike. When, when you start to get into what the problems were, it's almost like everything reverted right back to game one in terms of their defense. And it was the same deal again, which I know we're going to touch on a little bit more here. But again, Miami scored well in the first half. But the pace was not where it should be for the Heat, and eventually that caught up with them. All right, we're going to dig into this game more and more as we go on. We're going to get into Justice Winslow's performance, the defensive issues. Obviously, Hassan Whiteside has been a major talking point. But first, a phrase I'm looking forward to saying more and more often on this podcast, a word from our sponsor. Yeah, we like that, and we like this sponsor a lot. I want to talk to you a little bit about Core Fitness. Core Fitness is the only facility in Miami truly designed to optimize training for professional athletes and clients. Their trainers use data to create personalized performance programs. Their programs increase their clients' power and speed as well as decrease injuries. Their team consists of the best trainers, physical therapists, flexologists, and chiropractors in the sports and fitness industry. Make sure you visit them. Here's the website, corefitnessmiami.com. Thanks to Core Fitness for sponsoring today's edition of the pod. Now, Ethan, let's sink our teeth into game number three of this series. And our first thing that we're going to tackle is the thing that we mentioned there, the defensive performance in this game and so far in this series. And if you had sort of asked me at varying points in the game, how are the Heat doing from a defensive point of view? I'd say they're forcing difficult shots. I'd say that they're doing a decent job, but it's just not good enough. When you look at the totals at the end of the game, even if you sort of adjust for pace, it's still 124 points per 100 possessions on offense that Philadelphia is scoring in this series. Now, the game kind of got away from them in the fourth, but it's still 37 in the first, 26 in the second, and 33 in the third from Philly. Offensively, they made 18 threes in both of their victories, so maybe they have to run them off the three-point line more. But when you watch the game, Ethan, where do you see is going wrong for this Heat defense? It's all over the place. It really is. And you mentioned the 18 threes on 34 attempts. They shot 53% from three. Uh, That's outrageous. And, And that's a repeat of what we saw in game one. And then you add to that. The free throws, they got to the line 37 times, 37 free throw attempts, and they shot 76% from there. And even when MB didn't have his rhythm early offensively, he was getting to the line and making the heat pay there. So it's, it's really all across the board right now. And I think what we're seeing in this series is that there are certain guys, and we're going to get into them a little more, that are just difficult to play against Philadelphia. Uh, Wayne Ellington is difficult to play against Philadelphia. And so what you do when that happens is you take Wayne out of his regular minutes 
minutes. I think he played 18 or 19 minutes tonight. You take him out of his regular minutes, and then he's not a force for you offensively, which is something that you need also. But I just see a lot of scrambling on the Heat's part. They don't seem to know who to rotate to. Philadelphia moves the ball well. The other thing about this, too, we talked before the series that the one place that the Sixers were vulnerable was as a turnover team, right? The highest turnover team in the league. Only 10 tonight, 10 turnovers for the Sixers, 28 assists. So you're looking at close to a three to one assist to turnover ratio. When that's happening, you just know that the Heat are not making the Sixers field them defensively. And I think in game two, even though the Heat gave up 103, which is not a real small total either, you know, the Heat liked to sort of keep it into double digits as they can. But you felt that force that the Heat played with. I thought one of the things that did happen in this game, and I know Heat fans will point to this, is that the refs did call it at times early a little closer and then they started to let them play and it still didn't feel like that helped the heat all that much so I, I feel like this series has been impossible to officiate yes when you look at the physicality that both I saw Ira Winderman was saying are you guys enjoying how often these teams are going to the free throw line on Twitter and I'm just like how can you avoid calling fouls this is an extremely physical series and I'd actually disagree with you a little bit there Ethan when you say that the heat aren't letting them feel them I think actually and you heard JJ Redick give voice of this in between the games where you're saying Miami might think that they have us figured out based off of that game too because the way that they were able to stifle us from a defensive point of view but I think in this game they did used it against them a little bit I think you saw their aggressiveness perhaps go a bit too far and leave shooters open you saw Saric with plenty of open looks Bellinelli I mean and this is maybe another thing that we can talk about too just the idea that maybe these sixer shots are just impossible shots that are going in, and these are just outlier shots that keep happening. But at a certain point in a seven-game series, you can't keep saying, well, that's an outlier, because it just seems like Marco Bellinelli can make crazy shots. And I think that's really the theme for the entirety of the Sixers team, is that they're just a really good shot-making team, and that's what it takes to win playoff games. They are. In some ways, it reminds me a little bit of what the Heat went up against with the Spurs in 2014, where just the ball was moving and guys were making shots from pretty much everywhere. And at a certain point when Patty Mills made his fifth or sixth of those, you were just like, all right, this just is not going to go our way here. And I feel like that a little bit with Bellinelli at this stage. I mean, he was four of eight tonight. I thought it was an interesting twist that Brett Brown used here playing Justin Anderson a little bit. I know we're going to get into the physicality there with what happened there with with him and Wade, but basically Brett Brown, he didn't play big minutes for Fultz or, or McConnell, gave him just four and five minutes each, but gave Justin Anderson nine minutes. He made a couple threes also. So they ended up with 18 threes, and that's you know another guy who I wouldn't call him a plus shooter, but he's capable of making a three-point shot. So I think that's the biggest thing we've seen with the Sixers that's so difficult for the Heat to defend is that at all times – We've talked about this many times. The Sixers have three or four shooters on the floor. And now that they've added Embiid, you have another guy who can step out and make a three. And he made three of them tonight. So I just think the Heat's really scrambling to get out to shooters. They're not doing quickly enough. And we're going to touch on this. But they also don't have their anchor to their defense right now playing any minutes at all, right, in Whiteside. And, and whatever your criticisms are of Whiteside, and we're not going to hold back on those on this pod, um, but it does change the way that the Heat play defense when he's not playing what at least has become his norm this year, which is 26 to 27 minutes, when he's essentially getting half of that 
you're a different defensive team in terms of your approach, and I think that's affected them also. All right, I want to hit you with two questions before we move on to the white side bit. And that the, the first is the officiating. So I think a lot of Heat fans are going to have a go at the officials and, and have some complaints about how that game was officiated in terms of free throw attempts. It was 37 to 35, so at least from that, from that standpoint, it was equal. But obviously, Embiid became most sort of associated with a quote that he gave on Instagram, which was, I'm tired of being effing babied. And I feel like tonight the referees kind of effing babied him because he got some pretty ticky-tack foul calls. And even when he was falling around and it didn't seem like his offense was going anywhere, he got the free throws that eventually allowed him to get into the game a little bit. Then he blocked some shots. Then he made some threes. Then he looked like Joel Embiid again. And I don't feel like that happens without him getting to the free throw line. What did you make of the officiating? It was choppy as it's been. I mean, I don't know if it was quite as bad as the other night when we had, uh, what was it, the the dynamic duo of, uh, what was it, Scott Foster and... (laughs) And Tony Brothers. I don't know. I don't know if it was quite that bad, but I mean, you just don't know what you're going to get night to night here. And the heat was much more physical in game two than in game one. And so usually there is a response to that from the officials. I mean, that's the way these playoff series tend to go, whether they should or they shouldn't. That's the way that this happens. Are they a little bit more sensitive because of Embiid's situation? Also because of some of the stuff that sort of came out over the last 24 hours that maybe he was risking something more long-term by actually playing and some of those reports. Does that affect the officials also? I mean, they're human. Maybe they don't want to see the guy have sort of a career derailing situation here. I thought a couple of the fouls were ticky-tack, you know, with him getting the line. And I think the thing that people are going to have to start to get used to here is that Embiid and Simmons may not have pedigree in terms of having played for five and six years each at an all-star level, but they're being talked about like all-stars now. And so they're going to get some calls that maybe other guys don't get. I think, again, that's just the natural way that officials go about this thing. And maybe they were a little bit more sort of careful with him tonight because everybody knew what he was facing. And the other point that I want to hit on with you is the pace, because I think yeah. that's something that a lot of Heat fans will point out, is that this is not meant to be a 101 possessions game, which is what it ended up being per NBA.com slash stats, 100.84 over the course of the game. That's not where Miami wants to be. And for the first three quarters, for the first three quarters and change, it made for incredible spectacle as a neutral. If you're just watching that game, and I saw this from people that aren't Heat fans on Twitter that I follow for NBA commentary, they love the hell out of this basketball game. It was super fun to watch, and the Heat had that quality shot making for three quarters, but couldn't carry it through four. Do you think the Heat need to figure out ways to drag it into the mud? Because you'd figure with 56 total personal fouls between the two teams, we had three double technicals. This game had had the fouls for a choppy pace, and yet still Philly kept it going. That's how they want to play. How does the Heat sort of get a stranglehold on the series in that from that perspective? Again? Yeah, I mean, the Heat was, what, 27th in the league in pace this season. I mean, they want to play slower, obviously. And look, the Heat was 7th in the league in defensive rating. And so they were capable during the season of being able to make it a little bit more of a slog. But I don't know if they're capable of doing it in this series. I just, again, don't think that they have a great handle on how to deal with all of the Sixers shooters. And a lot of times the Sixers are taking shots before you would think they should take a shot in the set. And you've talked about some of the, you know, some of sort of these off balance or difficult attempts. They're getting these shots off in the front end of the shot clock in the first 12 seconds. And so that becomes more challenging. You know, the other thing about it is, look, if you want to slow the pace 
it helps to have your best rebounder out there a little bit more often also. Again, coming back to Whiteside. And, you know, now what has Hassan played in this series? Like 41 minutes, I think, total is about where he's at. Uh, Mm -hmm. at this stage and and he's made no impact in any of the three games and it's very difficult for the heat to kind of change the barometer on this series in terms of the pace of play if their big guy is not slowing things down for them I mean you go back to other heat teams okay and this is not a great heat team it's an interesting heat team and and I give them credit for sort of maximizing what they have but you go back to other heat teams they all had ways of slowing the pace Right. Riley's teams with with the the morning Hardaway group. I mean, they would just milk the clock down to three seconds. okay, before taking shots. Tim had a great sort of feel for that. Look, Dragic is a point guard who wants to play faster. He doesn't want to play in in the back end of the 24 second shot clock. It's just not the way that he plays. They don't have a post up presence right now, uh, especially with Whiteside not playing. And their point guard is a guy who likes to push pace. So, you know, what we saw in game two was they controlled, and you talked about this a lot after game two, Chris, that they were able to control the pace a little bit more because the ball was really in Dwayne's hands, right? Like Dwayne was making so many of the key decisions, but Dwayne was not as effective tonight, and so the ball was not in his hands quite as much, and he's really the one guy on this team who will make a conscious effort to make sure that the pace is slowed. So unless he's playing well and they're playing through him, I don't really know how you do it. Yeah, and Wade, when he was in the game, if you sort of factor out the garbage time minutes, third fastest pace of guys that played a big minutes, 103.5, which is lightning quick. And that is not where the Heat want to be, particularly when he is on the floor. We'll get to part number two on Hassan White's obviously a major talking point and his sort of rivalry with Joel Embiid that didn't really turn out to be a rivalry in this game. But first, man, I love, I love saying this again. A word from our sponsor. Today's edition of the 5 Reasons Podcast is brought to you by Priority Realty Partners. Are you looking to sell your house and know the accurate price for it? In South Florida, you want to work with a real estate agent that is a professional, trustworthy, and knows the area well. Get a free house price analysis from a real estate agent at Priority Realty Partners. You'll love working with a Priority Realty Partners agent just like our clients do. You deserve to work with a knowledgeable partner when buying or selling your home. We're knowledgeable, part of the community, and Miami sports fans just like you. It's a great time to buy or sell in South Florida. Go to PriorityRealtyPartners.com. Select one of our sales agents for your free house evaluation. That's PriorityRealtyPartners.com. All right, let's get back to the heat conversation here, Ethan. And we have to talk about Hassan Whiteside's performance in the game. Want to get to Joel Embiid's return as well. Kind of mention him and, and the free throw situation with him taking 15 for the Sixers tonight. But Hassan Whiteside, we thought, Ethan, when Embiid came back, and it was a bit of a shock around 5 o'clock this afternoon when it was announced that he was upgraded to probable for tonight's game, that Embiid was going to play. He ended up playing 30 minutes. And you'd figure Whiteside would go minute for minute with him. And yet, particularly down the stretch when the game was being decided and Bede was kind of you know being left to defend James Johnson at times and was going against the Heat smaller lineups in Olenek as well Whiteside only logging 13 minutes tonight what for you went wrong with him again you know I, this one reminded me a little more of game one to be honest I, I thought his effort was better in game two and, and the foul that he picked up that kind of derailed him that third foul although you know not the smartest play to have your seven footer trying to make a play in the backcourt as we discussed uh, on the last pod, at least it was a crime of effort, right? Like he was trying to make a play there, and it just was not a smart foul. And I do, I did think that changed his minute distribution. But in this game, I, this one, he just again seemed disengaged, uh, a lot like Game One. And and now you know you can take a look at it, you know, in composite at this point. He's played a total of 40 minutes in this series, right? I mean, if you have an elite center making 98 million dollars. 
that's close to the minutes you would want him playing in one playoff game, right? So he's played it yeah. now in three. He had taken a total of seven shots. He had a comment after the game about how they've gotten away from their offense and getting the ball into him. I, I think that's something I'll have to look a little bit more carefully at the tape and see what exactly happened on some of those possessions. But again, one field goal attempt tonight, two field goals attempted in game two, four field goals attempted in game one. He's gotten in the line a total of six times. Now, he's made five of them, but just six times. He has 12 rebounds, one assist, four blocks, okay? So, and a total of 11 points at this stage. That's what you've gotten out of 40 minutes of play for Whiteside. And I think we're at the point now, as much as I said earlier, that it would be really helpful for them defensively and also in terms of controlling pace if they could play Hassan more minutes and felt comfortable doing it. I think we may be at the point now where Spolster makes a change, Chris, because I, I thought he was going to give him, I kept saying this, at least one game against Embiid. He didn't want to lose him in the series until Embiid came back. But you have Embiid who's rusty, who hasn't played in what, what, I mean, what are we looking at? It's upwards of a, a month. month, right? Was worried about sort of suffering some kind of re-injury there, and he thoroughly outplayed Hassan. And maybe he got the benefit of some calls. Um, you know, Certainly you can make an argument for that. But this was the game, really, that Hassan at home, coming off two subpar games, getting an opportunity against Embiid, that you needed him to play at a higher level. And again, he just didn't. And I don't want to pin it all on him because this is what always happens. And this is now the stuff that's swirling on Twitter. Well, why aren't you pinning it on you know the fact that Dwayne didn't play well or the fact that Winslow, somebody we're going to discuss, who I thought played a really good game, was a minus 27 in the game. Whereas I, yeah. whereas I, And a minus 23 in the fourth quarter alone. Right. And whereas Hassan was what overall? I, I think he was actually a minus three, right? So that's negligible mm -hmm. and it's 13 minutes so you could you could look at that number and say okay he didn't cost you the game but the fact that he's not doing what it is that he's being paid to do and Spolster doesn't trust him to play the big minutes just everything else that they do at this stage and it's really making it impossible for for them to really win this series to me, the thing that stands out about Whiteside is that nothing stands out about Whiteside. I don't remember one play that he made in the game other than the two-handed dunk that he had. I, I forget even when that happened. But I feel like the reason why this is so frustrating is because he's an anonymous player in this series. He's done nothing. And I feel like more than doing something poorly, doing nothing is almost as offensive from a $98 million player. And while, you know, obviously the salary will get thrown around a bunch, the reason why is because it's misallocated resources, right? If you're getting value from other places like Dwayne Wade on the contract that he's on and Winslow turning in one of the best playoff performances we've seen him turn in on a rookie deal, then you want to be giving your $25 million to someone who's going to add more, be the best player on the team. And whether it's on the defensive end, he's being, dri he's being driven further and further away from the basket. And look, that's a product of the opposing team, and give credit to them, right? The Sixers have figured out a way to nullify us on Whiteside's impact on a game, whereas Joel Embiid, and I think you can kind of tell watching the game, the difference in the athletes that they are. Hassan Whiteside, while being... I would say more powerful, maybe a bit stronger, has more of that physical build than Joel Embiid does. What you see Embiid have is the quickness. Embiid has a quickness that allows him, yeah, maybe it doesn't always look great when he's defending James Johnson on the perimeter, but he at least has some of the recovery speed to be able to block shots near the rim and, and create an impact. You saw his defensive impact in this game, Embiid. Whereas Whiteside just doesn't have the speed and the quickness to really defend out on the perimeter, to really hold his own, and you just see him look lost out there. And then offensively, there isn't anything that you would say is his calling card. If I said, 
how would Hassan Whiteside get to 25 points in this series, or 25 points to a game in this series? I don't even know what that answer is. I don't know what that answer is generally. Like, what what does a great Hassan Whiteside performance look like? It's been so long that I forget what it looks like. It's at this point, is it offensive rebounds? Is it slamming down dunks on pick and rolls? Like, I just don't know what is a pet play to run for Hassan or a way to get him involved. And at this point, I agree with you, Ethan. It's not on Eric Spolster to figure out ways to get Hassan Whiteside involved. It's on Eric Spolster to figure out ways to win this series. And now you have two losses left to spare. You have one loss, really, left to spare. I don't think you can really have any time for somebody's feelings. You have to figure out a way to best win the next game. I think you'd feel a little bit better if Bam was playing at a higher level right now also because I I think that may be forcing Spoh's hand a little bit to at least stay with Whiteside because, again, if you're going to make a decision to pull Whiteside, uh, you're going to have to start either Bam or Olenek. And you may start Bam because you want Olenek to stay with the bench unit where he's been effective, at least, you know, offensively. So I think that is a little bit of a challenge here. But your point on Hassan is dead on there. I mean, I, I thought we were seeing him develop incrementally in a lot of different ways offensively. You know, I go back to that stretch when he was coming off the bench two years ago with Winslow and Richardson. And and Hassan played so well during that stretch. And you started to see, okay, there's, uh, you know, there's a little bit of quickness in the post there. And you know what? He's developing a little bit of a push shot from about eight to 10 feet. And you know what? Even that mid-range jumper looks okay at times. You know, even if Spolster would sort of be like, no, 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 no. Hassan was making some of those. And, you know, so you could see him adding elements to his game and then combine that with, you know, how dynamic he was. You know, you got those floaters from Dwayne in the lane where it seemed like Dwayne was basically deciding I was he was going to go into the lane every time and he'd flip it up at the rim and sometimes it would look like a pass to Hassan, right? Because he was finding Hassan for dunks so many times. But it just doesn't seem like Hassan has that kind of rhythm with anybody right now. Maybe the short minutes are playing into that a little bit. One thing that I, I have heard, Chris, that I wanted to throw out here as far as it goes with Hassan is I've heard that there's been an issue all year about him wearing the brace, that this has been a point of, uh, I got this from a couple of different people, that this has been a point of contention all year, that the Heat has wanted him to play with the knee, the brace? knee brace, that that, that okay. the Heat has wanted him to play with a knee brace, and he has not wanted to, and that this has been something that they've been at odds about at times this season. That's something I've gotten from a couple people in the last week. So, look, I don't know if maybe the fact that he was never really a, totally 100% this year has played into some of this. But when we had Ira on the pod to talk about the most important player for the Heat in the playoffs, and I identified Hassan, and the one point that Ira made was that Hassan just hasn't been as explosive as we've seen in recent years. And so it goes beyond, you know, the fans are always getting on him about some of sort of the mental lapses and disengaging and all that. But just athletically, maybe he has not been at quite the level that he was a couple of years ago. And what you're seeing, the difference between him and Embiid, and I know Hassan had one great game against Embiid, and maybe there'll be another one in this series. Who knows? But I think the difference that you're seeing is that you can play Embiid in every type of situation. And that's the, if you look around the league, there's a group of elite bigs that you can say that about. Obviously, the guy in New Orleans is one of those. Probably, Actually, you could say that about probably both guys in New Orleans, or at least as long as Boogie Cousins is in New Orleans. I think you could say that about Carl Anthony Towns in Minnesota, even though he He's not an elite defender. Uh, You can play him in all spots on the floor. I think uh, Jokic is another one 
who not great. Ooh, no, no. I, I feel like from a defensive well, point of view, he, he, he could be pretty well, well exposed. Well, he could be exposed defensively, but offensively, right? You can play. I mm-hmm. mean, he's an inside-out player. There's lots of different yes. styles you can play with him. You slow it down a little bit. He's effective in the half court. And also when Denver plays, as they often do, more of a pace game, you can play him that way. The problem with Hassan is you're limited to a very specific style of game. And in this series, I don't think they're going to be able to get to that style unless he's starting and is so dominant in the first few minutes of the game that he sets the tone for the whole thing. And it just doesn't seem like the Heat are inclined to sort of push the game towards him for him to do that. And it doesn't seem like he's inclined to take it either. All right, let's get into Embiid's performance here. What did you make of his return? How surprised were you that we got the call? And <laughs> I, I've, I've been hesitating about how I'm going to phrase this over the course of the last few hours since I saw the highlight. But you know what? I'm just going to go for it. How much of a dick move was it by Justice Winslow <laughs> to step on the glass portion of his mask? Where did this justice come from, Chris? I mean, what an... <laughs> well, but the thing is... But also, what a quintessentially Riley thing to do. This is what a 90s Knicks team would have done to Joel Embiid's mask. Absolutely. And I think if you're a Heat fan, and we're going to touch on justice a little bit more, but I, this is what you want to see from justice. Because I think one of the questions with justice over the first couple of years was that didn't show any emotion, right? Like, we've seen him show emotion a couple of times when he's had like a thunderous dunk and you go back to the first game that he ever played for the Heat and a couple of other instances. But for the most part, Justice kind of keeps things internal and you don't really know what he's thinking. And what we've seen is he's unleashed his inner Duke lately. Like this is the type of attitude I think that he's going to need to have as he progresses is to get a little bit more nastiness about him. And so I look, I, I I thought it was funny. I do agree with you that I think it it was very nineties Knicks, you know, Riley would have liked it. And Riley tells this great story about those Knicks teams when he came in there, take over the Knicks. And they were kind of this wayward franchise as they've pretty much been ever since he and Jeff Van Gundy left, but they were, they were kind of this wayward franchise And he tells this story about the marketing department, which had come up with some like sort of very sweet slogan for the Knicks or whatever. I mean, it was very positive and all the rest. And Riley was in a meeting with them and and he basically drew on a sheet of paper a chalk outline. And he said, I want this to be the marketing slogan (laughs) (laughs) for for the team. And and that's the way that they played. I mean, that was, uh, you know, the Anthony Mason, Charles Oakley, Patrick Ewing, John Starks teams like that's the way that they played. And so I don't think that Pat Riley would have any problem with what Justice Winslow did to Joel Embiid. I mean, this is the same Pat Riley who had rules and got very upset whenever Alonzo Mourning and Patrick Ewing, who were basically best friends, right? I mean, one followed the other at Georgetown. They worked out every summer, and then they played each other in four straight playoff series. And whenever they would go to dinner or even suggest they were going to dinner during the series, Riley would have a conniption about it. That's the way that he views basketball. So I I don't think he'll have any issue with it. I think, again, long-term for Justice, that's the kind of attitude that you want him to have. But and I don't think it took away from Justice's game tonight. But was it kind of a dick move? Absolutely. But I didn't have an issue with it. <laughs> I will say though, I thought Embiid's mask was going to end up screwing with his game. But by the end of the game, it seemed like he either got on with it. I'm sure I haven't read the quotes yet from after the game. I'm sure he didn't like it. But 
it seemed like he was able to at least get on a little bit was sort of I grew into the game from a contact point of view and I thought in the end turned in a pretty decent performance let's move now to part three I want to dig deeper into Justice Winslow's performance I thought he was absolutely sensational tonight aside from stepping on Joel Embiid's glasses which I reacted to in the moment as I didn't really like it so much but obviously it's part of the competitiveness of it from an offensive point of view with stepping into threes with confidence that's all you want from Justice Winslow even if obviously you'd like him to make it at above 32 33% so opposing teams at least have to respect it but shooting it with confidence it going in four times was a pivotal part of the game the playmaking was important his aggressiveness was important his defense was important I thought and we'll get into the plus minus in a moment but first I thought he was fantastic tonight and this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. Really sort of, I had sort of long been in the camp that Justice Winslow was just not going to end up being a reliable enough playoff player, that he was going to be able to be schemed out of series, and that he was going to be the next victim of playoff defense, playoff-style basketball. And he was in his rookie year, but he's done enough growing in the next two years to where he was not only someone who could survive on the floor, he was a pivotal part of what the Heat were doing today. Yeah, and before I get into his performance, uh, I just saw a quote here from Manny Navarro of the Herald that came in on Twitter. uh, MB talking about the mask. He says, as far as the mask, Justice stepped on it, tried to break it with his hands. But little did he know, we have about 50 of them. It's going to take much more than that (laughs) to get me out of this series. I'm going to be a nightmare for them, too. And this was Embiid on the block exchange of Winslow. He said, it felt great when he blocked me. I didn't say anything good for him. He talked a lot. On the other end, I got him back. You don't really want to talk trash to me. I'm glad I got him back. So, I mean, did we really think we'd ever be in a situation where, like, somebody on the other team like Embiid would be talking about Justice Winslow as a trash talker? I mean, that's where we all I'm where still, we are. In I'm surprised. Series. I'm surprised he said anything on the floor, much less trash. Yeah. So this is a little bit strange. Now we're gonna put the plus minus number to the side for a second, but we got to come back to it because I, I think we have yes. to decide if that's a referendum on Winslow or a referendum on that stat. So uh, let's touch on that here in a second. I thought. Justice was the best player on the floor for the Heat tonight. And I thought, you know, Justice was extremely competitive. You talk about the three-point shooting. Here's the strange thing about the three-point shooting for me, Chris, is that Justice Winslow shot 38% from three this year, right? I think what's interesting about this with Justice Winslow is, like, you talk about the stats, right? 
And it's like a stat that no one believes. Like, Justice made 38% of a healthy number of threes this year. Not a huge number, but a healthy number. And nobody believes that it's legitimate. Like, everybody's still talking about him like you can play four and five against him. And I just think that's strange. And I, I know this comparison is overdone. And look, clearly, in, in some other ways, you know, Justice Winslow has a hell of a long way to go to get to where Kawhi Leonard was after his first three seasons, and particularly as a finisher around the rim. I would start there, okay? But... If you just take a look at the three-point percentage, Kawhi shot essentially 38%, 38%, in his first three years. Justice shot 26%, 20%, and 38%. So it's taken Justice longer to get there, and so he doesn't have the sustained track record of it. But he shot in his third year from three what Kawhi shot in his third year from three with some fewer attempts. I think Kawhi shot about 190 as compared to Justice's 129. But still, it does give you a sense that at least there was the improvement in that area that you were hoping for this season. And I threw this on Twitter, and this is becoming kind of a joke, Chris, because I put these polls on Twitter, and it just tells you how nobody can make up their damn mind about this Heat team (laughs) in any way. So every time I put a poll on about the Heat, okay, I put one on about when they lost to the Knicks late in the season, I was like, is that who the Heat are, or is it the team that competes well against good teams? And you know what I got? 50-50. Then I put another poll on before today's game. Who should start a two-guard for the Heat? I put four names on the list. Wade, Tyler Johnson, Magruder, and Ellington. You know how that poll came out? Basically 25, 25, 25, 25. Okay? It was, it, it said the high number was 28 and the low number was 22. I put a poll on tonight. In three years, who's the better player, Josh Richardson or Justice Winslow? You know what I got? 50-50? 50-50. More than, six, more than 600 votes, and it's 50-50. And... I think that speaks a little bit to people not really knowing what justice is yet, right? Because I think you're getting sort of a sense of what Josh Richardson is. I think Josh Richardson is a a really good wing defender who is your third scorer on a good team probably and a guy who's going to have some nights where he gives you 21 and some nights where he gives you 10 or 11. And in some ways that's a little bit like sort of a B-minus Eddie Jones. I mean, it's not a prime Eddie Jones, but it's kind of like where Eddie was around his prime, before or after. And that's about what Josh Richardson projects as at this stage, to me. But I think with Justice, there's still so much unknown, Chris. Like, I think we just waver back and forth. There are times he looks unplayable. And there are other times, like tonight, where for stretches he looked like the best player on the Heat. So I don't know really what he is yet, but I did think tonight... He was impactful. And so with that, I'm going to transition to this. If he was impactful, Chris, how the hell was he a team worse minus 27? (laughs) Well, okay. Well, I actually have the reason why is he was a minus four entering the fourth quarter, which is about reflective of, you know, where the Heat were and where he was in the game. And then he was just on the floor as the game went to hell. And I guess, I mean, maybe you can pin it somewhat on him, but it's really the amalgam of everybody in that fourth quarter. I'd have to go back and watch it again because it just escalated so quickly. But how that game got away from the Heat so much after it was a two-point game after three. So he's a minus 23 because he's out there for nine minutes of it, and they were the worst of the nine minutes. And so he gets tagged with the minus 23 in the fourth quarter. I think you have to kind of, again, and this is really the same thing with analytics in general, is you have to use them as a tool rather than the tool. And so, yeah, you look at that minus 23 number in the fourth and you look at the minus 27 number in whole and say, well, hang on a minute. What was his role in contributing to the downfall of the Heat in the fourth quarter? But I don't think you can singularly blame him or say that he was a minus 27 and that he was the worst player on the floor 
I think you have to sort of take it in context, right? And the context of the game was through three quarters between the block shots, between getting to the foul line too. He had eight, eight free throws, stepping into threes, stepping into opposing players on defense. I thought gave you everything that you wanted. Maybe you go back and watch the fourth quarter and say, didn't give you what you wanted in the fourth. But I feel like on the whole, he was really good tonight. And for me, and, and, and you mentioned the poll with Richardson and Winslow. To me, the thing that, would slow you down on Winslow is if you already made up your mind on him. And I'll, and I'll be honest with you, Ethan. I did. After two and a half years, I said, this guy's just never, he's, he's your eighth man. He's not going to be able to play in a playoff series. I wrote him off. And look, man, that's a mistake to make off a 22-year-old guy who still is going to be learning and developing in the NBA. But I just, I have such a hard time with non-three-point shooters. And look, you can give me the numbers and compare them to Kawhi. I still don't think of him as a three-point shooter. I was kind of watching the game and go, why, did, why does Philly leave that guy open? I looked at it with Winslow. like, oh, it's Winslow. I can understand why you left him open. And I'm still going to think that way until he becomes a high-volume quality three-point shooter, which he isn't yet. And so, to me, I just write off wings who can't shoot. And so Winslow, if he can really become a confident three-point shooter, steps into it, the form looks good, and it's time and again that he's developing, then I'll believe it. But for me, when you look at Winslow on the whole as a player, the reason why you wouldn't believe him is because you had already made up your mind. And I'm, and I'm one of those guys, so I'm not going to blame anyone else for doing that. But I, with that kind of a playoff performance, it's like the same thing with Wade, where I would have thought ahead of the playoffs, yeah, maybe Wade couldn't summon it again. But he did, and so you kind of have to eat it and, and, and at least allow new information to creep in and allow new, new information to change your mind. All right, we're going to get to talking about Dwayne Wade and the play of the Miami Heat guards tonight, but first, a word from our Miami Heat podcast here on the Five Reasons Network. That is Miami Heat Beat. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Heat Beat podcast. I'm your host, Carlo Navas, and with me today is professional screw-up Alex Salido. Who is late? I mean, this guy cannot even show up hey, to what's up, promos on. T- oh, my God. He's Promo? so frustrating. What Today on the show, Promo? we talked about Dwayne Wade's heroics, James Johnson and Justice Winslow's defense, Eric Spolstra's adjustments, and Nikias and Christian give us some small sample size theater. Bitch-ass podcast. Listen to Heat Beat twice a week during the NBA playoffs. Definitely check out the Miami Heat Beat podcast on iTunes or Google Play. All right, Ethan, let's move to part four, and that is Dwayne Wade off of his fantastic performance in game number two is not able to follow it up two for ten on the night and just didn't have the same impact. And when you look at it sort of packaged together with the Heat's guards, there's there's a ton to talk about from a guard point of view. You mentioned Tyler Johnson. I thought he was pretty good tonight in the minutes that he did play, but again, not able to stay on the floor for very long, only seven, a little under 17 minutes. Dragic was fantastic tonight. Ellington was unable to play very much. Then you have Richardson as well. There's a lot to talk about, but let's start with Wade and him going two for ten. And like you said earlier, unable to really exert that influence over the game that he was able to do in in game two. Is this kind of the reality of Wade now where a great performance, age 36, you're just not going to expect it night tonight? Yeah, I think so. I I think that's where you're at with Dwayne. I mean, look, the, the 28 points was magical against Philadelphia, and he was so good in so many different ways. I mean, you're talking about a guy who has, you know, more than 170 playoff appearances. If you look at the game score for that game, uh, it was 32nd among his playoff appearances. So basically in the top 20% of all the playoff performances over the course of his career. So did you expect him to replicate that? You know, probably not. You know, you thought there might be a little bit of magic at home and, and particularly the introduction that he got coming off the bench that he might be energized by that. But I, again, the other thing you have to think about in this series is that he is 36 years old. 
and the pace is pretty fast, right? And, you know, we talk about Dwayne's ability to slow the pace, but you mentioned his pace, particular individual pace number tonight was high. And so you're not really playing to his strengths in a series like this, again, unless he's the one who is actively slowing it down. And he has to be playing well for that to happen. He has to feel it. And that just never happened tonight. You know, the other thing is, you know, you talk about Goran, and we're going to get into him. Uh, He was playing so well that the ball was in his hands more often tonight. And and so I think that played into it a little bit too. Whereas I thought in game two, you know, Goran had a sort of a quiet 20 in that game. Like uh, a lot of it happened without Dwayne, on the floor also tonight. I thought it was a little bit more taking turns and I thought Dwayne kind of relinquished control a little bit more to Goron. So I think that played into it too, but look, Dwayne's going to get another day off. So you hope you can get another game out of him this series, maybe not like the 28, but where he gives you 18 or something along those lines, shoots a pretty high percentage and gets some of those assists, but really just not a huge impact tonight. I mean, overall, He had five assists, but he had four turnovers, had a couple of rebounds, got to the line for four free throws. But as you mentioned, two of 10 overall from the field. So it was pretty it was a little bit like game one, a little less efficient than game one for him, but pretty nondescript performance. On the flip side, I thought Goran Dragic was brilliant tonight in terms of getting to the rim, had a flexing moment, which I thought was awesome, had a little mini rivalry with Marco Bellinelli that was inexplicable and fantastic, Italy v. Slovenia, that that was just a (laughs) random European rivalry that broke out in the middle of an NBA series, attacked the rim, eight assists, 23 points, that's exactly the kind of playoff performance that frankly, I'd gotten to the point where I wasn't going to expect it from Dragic just because I didn't feel like he had ever really exerted himself in a playoff game in a heat uniform, particularly with Dwayne Wade on the floor. And yet tonight he absolutely did. And I thought he was really good. No, I thought he was great. And you mentioned that chip on his shoulder that he plays with at times. I, you know, we've always talked over the years about how Dwayne plays better mad. Danilo Gallinari made him bleed his own blood in New York. And then Dwayne scored like the next 30 zillion points. Dragic has a little bit of that in him too. Um, And it's interesting with Dragic because Dragic is the nicest guy you'll ever meet in sports. Likes nothing better than to take his two kids to the park and nobody notice him. I mean, that's just who he is. And yet he has these little rivalries. I mean, he has a Slovenian rivalry with Sasha Vucevic. Um, if you remember that confrontation that went on for years. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's had these situations where he gets into scraps. You know, he's looking, he's a tough player. I remember that during that playoff run that, you know, he sort of earned Haslam's respect. He got the stamp of approval from Haslam for, for th- <laughs> 305 approved. Yeah, he's 305 stamped for, for uh, throwing his face in there. So I think Goran does play better in those scenarios. And I think what we have seen over the past couple of games is you and I talked about the concern that he wasn't going to be able to free himself from Covington's long arms in this series. And clearly he has found some ways to do that. So I think you give him some credit for his resourcefulness. I don't know that he was great defensively tonight overall, but I again, that's not what you're most worried about with Dragic in this series. It's just that he's aggressive, that he's he, he taking some of those, even those one-on-two drives that he makes. And, and I thought tonight, he made two very, there were two very difficult finishes by him near the rim. I mean, shots that you just didn't think he had an angle to get to go in. So I, I thought he was really good tonight. We talk about the other guards Chris, you know, Tyler Johnson, as you mentioned, was better. I mean, he made a couple of threes 
early. It's just clear that Eric's not going to play him extended minutes, right? I mean, that's we're at the stage now where Tyler's night. What do you think that is? Do court. you think it's because he's unable to kind of follow everyone around defensively? Yeah. I, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that he's unable to play. Yeah, I, I think that's played into it a little bit. Why is Tyler not playing more? I it just seems like Eric's made that decision for a while now, right? Like that's something else Ira talked about with us uh, when he appeared with us in the pod was that last year. Tyler played down the stretch of a lot of games. And even when they had to go to four guards, like he would play, even when they had Dion, right? Like they had Dion and they had Dragic. I mean, Tyler would be out there and that just has not happened this year. You know, Tyler Johnson is pretty much a placeholder. You know, he plays the first few minutes of the first quarter, plays the first few minutes of the third quarter, maybe gets one other stint for four or five minutes. And that's about it. The other guy, though, you know, I had actually made a suggestion on the pod about starting Wayne Ellington in this series to get him going offensively. But I'm backing away from that, Chris, because yeah. uh, it, it's it's just difficult for him to play defensively in this series. He's gotten lost a lot. And, you know, the thing with Wayne that's interesting here is that they have a decision to make on Wayne this offseason. And they are basically maxed out with the cap, and they are really close to the tax, right? And Wayne pushes them over into the tax in a significant way if they're going to pay him. And when you just look at their roster right now, I mean, regardless of what Dwayne decides, and I think they're going to allow Dwayne to make a choice, but even without Dwayne, you're t- you still have Tyler on that contract. You've got Rodney Magruder, who you could give bigger minutes to next year, and you have Deion Waiters coming back, and you also have a guy in Josh Richardson who can play some minutes at the two if you're going to play Winslow more at the three if Winslow becomes a better spacer over time. So it's possible that Wayne Ellington struggles to kind of stay on the floor defensively in this series might be his ticket out of Miami. All right, before we get to the fun of the rivalry in this series in Part 5, let's hear a word from our Dolphins podcast ahead of the NFL Draft. We're only a week out from the first round of the NFL Draft. Let's hear from the lads over three yards per carry. In the latest three yards per carry, you listen to this type of analysis. He is the most explosive player in this in this draft. He is. You know, you only have to turn on the film to see that. I can have, yeah. No, I mean, come on. He is not just explosive like diarrhea. That's outrageous. And this... Hopefully go. Bo Scarborough has uh, more control over his bowel movements than Najee <laughs> yeah. Davenport. So remember to listen to us every Thursday morning on iTunes, Podbean, and your favorite podcast provider. All right, let's get to point number five, which is just how much damn fun that game was. And now how we kind of have some narrative arcs going forward that I'm really fired up about. And that actually brings me now to the portion of the program where I surf through Twitter looking for things that happen in the locker room. We've actually already got two things, and that's even before we get to some of the other things we want to talk about. First off, Embiid in the postgame locker room. Your former colleague, Manny Navarro, has had more than a few gems from Joel tonight. He says that Goran Dragic didn't get enough shit for his late layup in Game 2, and he's glad the Sixers kept scoring in Game 3. Quote, I think it's good. I love blowing teams out. I like the fact that we did that. We're not here to make friends. We're here to win a series. I mean, it really is sort of an indication. These two teams do not like each other, and they displayed it on multiple occasions. We mentioned the rivalry brewing between Dragic and Bellinelli. We had the Winslow and Bede moment. We had Winslow going at it with multiple guys, including Simmons, Justin Anderson, and Dwayne Wade getting into it. By the way, do you think that was dirty from Dwayne Wade? I thought it was questionable. Yeah. You know, look, you know, Justin Anderson is in there to be physical. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, he's, 
Made a couple threes too. I thought he had a decent impact. He, he can make some threes. I don't think he's a plus three point shooter for his career though. But but he is a guy you can send out there to space on occasion. Um, it was it was questionable. I mean, Dwayne's had a lot of these moments over the course of his career. I mean, there's still people in Boston. Uh, who are standing for Rondo, who still think Dwayne injured Rondo's elbow, you know, intentionally. There was the Ramon Sessions incident, of course, when Sessions was yeah. in Charlotte. I mean, so Dwayne... The Boston fans think that Dwayne Wade is actually a dirty player. The, well, they do. Well, Bill Simmons is, basically. I mean, Bill... <laughs> right. I mean, Bill Simmons is... <laughs> He's carved out that corner for himself. He has fanned those flames. And, and Dwayne actually went back at him a little bit on Twitter, which was kind of a funny moment a couple of weeks ago. But it was questionable. Um, but again, I... If Dwayne's going to play with a chip, if Justice is going to play with a chip, I mean, we talk about needing intensity, right? Like, what is the issue with Whiteside right now, right? Like, you're not I was going to say, well, that was literally my next thought is, why isn't Whiteside getting in on this? Why isn't he having a go at Embiid? Like, even just to get himself going, to get something going. Like, I feel like that was the whole reason why we were holding out hope for Hassan, and we didn't see that at all. Like, Whiteside and Embiid get into it with each other. Well, I actually thought he, defend- I thought he defended him fairly well, but... It wasn't quite that, you know, you go, I go kind of single game rivalries that develop over the course of a playoff series. Well, because I think I think Whiteside is so turned off by what he views as coaching decisions right now that I think that's his primary focus. I mean, speaking of, yes, speak, from the post game yes, locker room, I was get to that. Hassan Hassan Whiteside quote. Coach wants me to just be in a corner and set picks. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Right. So you knew this was going to flare up, right? And so, I mean, here's a little bit more from that. This is from Barry Jackson. Um, he said, it's just different, man. He said, I feel like our offense is a lot different. I'm not as involved in as many dribble handoffs as I was and post-ups as I was in the regular season. And then, as you said, that's what Coach wants. Coach wants me to just be in the corner and set picks. That's what he wants. I've just got to trust it. And he was asked if he could do more as far as a rebounder. And Whiteside said, yeah, I want to get more rebounds out there. I want to get more minutes out there. I'm just going to keep trusting coach decision-making, even with the fouls. I still could have been out there. I wouldn't have fouled out. I'm going to keep trusting coach's decision-making. He keeps saying it to sort of make it true. It's better he says that than what he said during the regular season. So I, I don't want to criticize him for that because, look, obviously he's frustrated. Obviously, Hassan has high regard for his own ability and thinks that he can play MB to a standoff or perhaps outperform. Why shouldn't outperform he? He got, he, got 98, he got ninety-eight million dollars, and he's done it over the course of his career with MB, yes. where he's outdueled him on multiple occasions. Right, but here's another quote here that we should probably get to before we move on from this. He said they run enough plays for MB that he's going to get his numbers. I don't really get caught up in that. He lives a big man's dream. He gets the ball. He gets the post up every other play. They pretty much run a lot of stuff through him and Ben Simmons. His shot attempts are going to be there. So why is he not taking on Embiid on the court? I mean, for one, he wasn't on the court with him all that long tonight, right? Embiid didn't play the first two games, and then Whiteside played only, as you mentioned, was 15 minutes tonight. So there wasn't, or 13 minutes. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity to do that. Uh, But also, I, I think Hassan is more distracted at this point by Eric Spolstra than he is by Joel Embiid, right? I mean, he's more distracted by what his role is on this particular team. And, you know, they've used him more in dribble handoff situations this year, but clearly he's not as comfortable in those as Olenek is. And so that plays into this a little bit. And then, you know, I I think that Eric has basically decided that whatever Hassan offers defensively as rim protection is not worth what you're giving up in other areas. You know, we've gone through this entire pod, Chris. We haven't even talked about Darius Saric, who continues to kill them, did again tonight. I mean, every game. I mean, he was 7 of 17 tonight, but 4 of 7 from 3, 21 points, 7 rebounds, and 4 assists. Like, they have no answer for him 
on the roster. And when you play Hassan and you play them straight up, they don't have an answer. The way that he scores, too, is kind of crazy. Like, the, the way that he finishes, the way that he puts English on the ball in order for it to go in. And the other thing, too, is just in general, we mentioned the 18 threes. And the 18 threes, for me, are the reason why any team wins a game. Even as Miami, you know, they made 16. Like, they weren't bad tonight from three-point range. But the way that Philly, you give them a slight window, a slight opportunity. And tonight, and I'm going to use a, a, a soccer phrase because they talk about that with with scoring goals in terms of you give them chances. You have to be clinical in front of goal in order to make sure you win games. The Sixers were clinical with their three-point chances tonight. When you gave them the slightest crack of an opportunity, Sarich and Bellinelli in particular knocked them down every single time you gave them even a pocket of space. And so they deserve huge amounts of credit for what they did tonight. And just to tie a bow on this thing with the rivalry, it's interesting to me how this has become a rivalry so quickly because you did play four competitive games so far this season, although some of the parts on Philadelphia weren't even there uh, for at least one of the one or two of those games. Um, and obviously, Dwayne joined this thing here a little bit late, too. Those games were mostly late in the season, so they were a little bit more bunched together. But I do think a lot of this goes back to that whole culture process thing where where, you know, Embiid has bought into the process and pushing that. And I think, you know, the Heat players, I mean, these are guys who have had to all sort of prove themselves over the course of their careers. And a lot of role guys who bounce from team to team to team, guys like Ellington and James Johnson, all this. And I'm not surprised that on the Heat side, there may be a little resentment of the way that the Sixers have gone about getting to where they are, right? Because it's not a way, I mean, we can talk about whether it's smart or whether it isn't smart to have as many cracks in the lottery as you possibly can. But while the Sixers were going through it and while they were kind of making a mockery of the game for at least a two-year period, and you can argue for a three-year period, as they were doing that, like other teams and other players around the league, I, I think, looked at this and were like, you know, what is it that they're doing? And is this really, the, the you know, a fair way to go about building a team. And so I think that there is, you know, a little bit of attitude from the heat towards the Sixers approach to this. And I, the only thing I'll say, Chris, is, you know, this is the time where I'm kind of pining for Dion waiters, because I, I think Dion in a series against his hometown team would have been a hell of a lot of fun. I don't know that he would have shot better than 30% from the floor. I mean, who knows, but I think that would have been a hell of, I mean, if you, you talk about one thing that would have added to this series in terms of a rivalry, you know, I'm kind of missing Dion a little bit right now. All right, before we go, I want to do a segment that I call Scrolling Through Twitter. And we begin <laughs> with Tom D'Angelo. He tweets, Wade on Justin Anderson, quote, He came into the game to be a tough guy. The officials didn't do anything about it, so I did. Mm. That, 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 so- that sounds more and more like that sort of uh, came with intent. Yeah, so the the narrative and the quotes and all that stuff just continues to build. And for for me, can we say this, Ethan? This is the best NBA playoff series going right now, right? Well, as we're speaking here, Golden State's about to go up 3-0, right? So you eliminate that one. New Orleans is about to go 3-0, by the New way. New Orleans is about to go up 3-0. That's interesting. Not, and actually, not not going to did. They beat the Blazers by 17 again tonight. Right, and Lillard, uh, that, was a, that was a really wise choice by me, is saying that he was the guy that was going to go from star to superstar in the playoffs. That's worked out yeah. well. So I said Davis, so I feel, ba- I feel good. That, that one's a little bit better. But yeah, that series hasn't been very good. The Houston-Minnesota series, I don't think anybody expects that to extend much longer. I guess Indiana 
Indiana Cleveland uh, has been interesting, yep. right? I mean, for Indiana to get a road one, one going back, and Kevin Love injury, Kevin Love injury, LeBron having to play at that kind of level just to get a three point win at home against that Indiana team, I think says something. The other one that's good too is Oklahoma City Utah. I think that'll be a fun one that might go seven. Yeah, that's possible. But yeah, th- this has been an interesting series. Uh, but uh, again, when you look at Game four, and I don't want to write the heat off yet because you and I did that a little bit after game one, and we saw how they responded in game two. But when you look at game four, the best thing that the Heat have going for them is to hope that the Sixers go out all night because you've got a 2.30 start on Saturday, <laughs> and uh, you've got some y- – Banking on some South Beach flu. Y- a little South Beach flu for Embiid uh, in the tradition of Iverson. You know, Iverson never made a shoot around in Miami ever. Like that, really? that's, that it, You can find that on Basketball <laughs> Reference. It's, it has own special category. <laughs> Uh, he, he shoot, shoot arounds attended. He, Nil. He never. It was always he has a headache. I, I remember trying to get down to shoot arounds uh, for Iverson interviews uh, whenever Philadelphia was coming into town, or even when Denver was coming into town when he was with them, and certainly when Detroit was coming into town because he didn't give a damn when he was in Detroit. But when he was with Philadelphia, that was always the thing. You know, I oh, Allen's back at the hotel. He's got a headache, or you know, his stomach ache, or something, which he probably we just code for. Or he's going to play the game smelling like tequila. Uh, that was exactly right. So, yeah, maybe maybe Embiid and Simmons, they borrow a little bit from Iverson and they do that. But if the Heat's going to win game four, they're just going to have to be so much more buttoned up defensively. And I do think that we're at the point now where, especially after Whiteside's comments after the game tonight, I wouldn't be surprised if Eric's pushed to the brink here and, and we see maybe Bam Adebayo starting game four and playing a total of 12 minutes, but basically just going with Bam and Kelly Olenek. Yeah, and I feel like that's sort of the, the the last desperation move, and certainly you don't want to go back to Philly down 3-1 with a chance to be eliminated, but I feel like this Heat team is, by virtue of their Game 2 performance, earned the credibility of counterpunching, and I'm just fascinated to see, like you said, Ethan, from that matchup point of view, what does Eric Spolstra do to respond? Because I feel like Eric Spolstra did kind of change the math in that Game 2, and you wonder if Dwayne Wade sort of exerts his force a bit more in game four as well we'll be recapping it straight after the game it'll be posting kind of saturday night into sunday morning so do definitely look for that uh, after game number four we'll be breaking it down again it's an early start on saturday afternoon with the sixers in the heat playing at 2 30 2 30 start time from American Airlines Arena. All right, that'll do it for this edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. Do definitely check out the other podcasts on our network, which at the moment are Ballscast. Subscribe on iTunes. Three yards per carry. We're getting near the NFL draft, so do definitely check that out. And, of course, Miami Heat Beat. They'll be reacting to the series kind of in more broad terms on a weekly basis, so subscribe to Miami Heat Beat. They do a terrific job over there. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks to our sponsors for this episode, and thanks to you for listening. 